All this year, WVIA Radio has been celebrating its 50th anniversary and honoring arts organizations throughout our region. Join us Sunday, November 26th at 3 p.m. for prizes and fun with the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble. Ralphie wants a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas in the hilarious and heartwarming holiday favorite for the whole family, A Christmas Story. Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble, November 24th through December 28th. Details at bte.org. Thank you, Chris Norton. Chris Norton is inviting us not to miss the 2023 BTE production of A Christmas Story, a play in two acts by Philip Grecian, based upon the motion picture, a 1983 Turner Entertainment movie written by Gene Shepard, Lee Brown, and Bob Clark, and the collection titled In God We Trust All Others Pay Cash by Gene Shepard, with a script issued by Dramatic Publishing. Philip Grecian wants us to know his own story about A Christmas Story. He writes, In the early 1970s, Playboy magazine published Gene Shepard's short stories about his Indiana childhood. I loved them, but even better than that, my children loved them and insisted upon them as bedtime stories. Shepard's stories did not appear in every issue, and so when one did, after months of waiting and disappointment, it was a family event. One evening during the Christmas season of 1983, we decided to take the children to a film. There was a new one at the mall theater about which we knew nothing. It was called A Christmas Story. We sat in the darkness as the coming attractions ended. The feature began, and these words appeared a film from the works of Gene Shepard. We jumped. Our Gene Shepard? Yes, our Gene Shepard. There on the screen were some of the stories we'd loved, woven together into a cinematic whole, narrated by Gene Shepard. Our Gene Shepard. Sixteen years later, Dana Woolworth, my editor at Dramatic Publishing, asked me, Have you ever seen the movie A Christmas Story? I think it'd make a great play. By this time, I owned the book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which collected the stories that had been so much a part of our lives. I didn't wait for the contracts to be signed. I began writing. I was three-quarters of the way through the first draft when all signatures were on the dotted lines. I could hardly wait for Shep, by this time I was referring to him by the nickname he preferred, to read the play. Two days later, Gene Shepard died. I mourned his loss. We had never met, but he had helped me raise my children. He was an unbilled family member, a favorite uncle. He never got to read the play. That weighed heavily on me. But as I finished the first draft and moved on to the second polished draft, I found myself asking more and more, would Shep do it this way? What would he think of this? I read the original stories over and over again, trying to capture Gene Shepard's rhythms, the way he put his words together. Sometimes, writing dialogue, I fancied that he stood over my shoulder, giving me pointers. Often, in my imagination, I heard that wonderful laugh of his when I made a scene work particularly well. So, thank you, Dramatic Publishing. Thank you, Dana, my friend and editor. And thank you, Gene Shepard, the dear friend I never met. 
Ralphie Parker will ever continue in his quest for that Red Rider 200-shot carbine action-range model air rifle on the printed page, on the screen, and on countless stages. And you will live on. That's from the preface to the dramatic publishing script for A Christmas Story, a play in two acts by Philip Grecian, based upon the motion picture. And the Bloomsburg Theatre Ensemble is inviting us to spend time with them in Homan, Indiana, in 1938, as they present A Christmas Story, from November 24th through December 28th at the Alvina Krauss Theatre. We had a chance to speak by phone with members of the BTE Resident Acting Company, director Elizabeth Dowd, and actors Amy Renee Byrne and Aaron White about the production and the whole history of holiday shows at the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble. Elizabeth Dowd. Christmas Carol was the very first show that BTE ever did as a holiday show. And we did it one weekend only up in Carver Hall uh, on the campus of Bloomsburg University, and there were lots and lots of community people joining us. Mrs. Fezziwig was a community member, and it was pretty magical. So we did that, and then when we realized what a great seller it was, we extended the run, and eventually when we had our own space, we were able to really offer it for a long time. But for many years, we just did Christmas Carol. And then we felt that we were getting maybe cynical in doing it, that it felt too um, mercenary. And we started to look for other things so that we could bring really a true heart to whatever we were bringing. And that's when we started to do rotations. But always Christmas Story and Christmas Carol. Since 2001, which is the first year that we did A Christmas Story, this will be our fifth production of A Christmas Story. So roughly every five years. This one was preempted by covid Elizabeth, what roles have you played in A Christmas Story over the years? Um, I played the mother in A Christmas Story in 2004, I believe. And then all the other years, I was either Miss Shields, I was Miss Shields, and uh, a bumpus hound. I have barked my way through many a Christmas and had a great time doing it. And so this is the first time that I am directing it. Jim Good directed it for, I believe, four years. And then Laurie McCants directed it in 2015, I think. And so this is uh, my first shot at being outside the show. And uh, I have to say, I still am really charmed by it. And you, Aaron, and you, Amy, have you ever been part of A Christmas Story at BTE or elsewhere? I have not. This is my first experience with A Christmas Story. I believe it is for both of us. So I have been involved in A Christmas Carol, but never A Christmas Story. So it's been a fun thing listening to Elizabeth's stories, but also our stage managers, Michael Yerges and Anand Kirshner, who have done it twice as well, hearing all the inside tracks of the way that we've done it in the past. And uh, it's a pretty multifaceted show, so it is a thing to get it to work. And Aaron, who are you this go-round? I, I play the old man, or the father, Ralphie's father, and I'm also designing the set, which is actually where I'm calling from the shop at the moment. Multi-hats for this one. And Amy, what are you up to in A Christmas Story? I am playing the mother opposite Aaron. One of the things, Elizabeth, that suggests itself as a question, having heard what Aaron just said, is what do you do to make it fresh? What do you see and hear in those lines and in the situation that you would like to bring out for us? I think I'm always interested. I've always been interested in looking to find. Uh, I think that we have to establish that this is not the beloved movie. 
And so what can we do that the movie could not do? And what we do is that we see adult Ralph. And so I think I've been actively looking for increased opportunities for young Ralphie and adult Ralph to have, I call, I call adult Ralph, Ralphie's imaginary future friends. I just think that that's a really delightful relationship. And so you can see the adult self having the wonder of viewing, remembering their childhood. And you can see the young child having this co-conspirator in this campaign to get the perfect Christmas present that he doesn't quite know who this person is, but they are definitely working toward the same goal. As a director, Elizabeth, what do you do about those, I hate to use the word because it is often overused, but those icons of the show, the leg lamp, the tongue, the BB gun, is there a way to handle them so that they're not just slam points that people are waiting for? Well, they're pretty, they're pretty solid slam points. And you know, <laughs> why, why mess with success? I think that the fabric of the family is very immediate because Aaron and Amy are such a wonderful old man and old woman and not old woman. <laughs> and we have just well, one, you know, wonderful community kids. Our Randys and our Ralphies are just delightful. So with the fabric of the family being the thing that we can lean into, you, you don't want to disappoint on that leg lamp breaking or the spoiler alert there or picking out the Christmas tree, all of those iconic things, the bunny suit on Christmas Eve, all, all of those things, the Red Rider, they're all there. And we have no intention of um, trying to not let those be the joyful things that you want to see. Aaron, tell us about the old man and how you are channeling your inner old man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, I actually, this is probably closer to parallel in my life at the moment. I, I have a nine-year-old who would have been a little younger than Ralphie. And so I think what's really interesting is just the sort of loving relationship that the parents have that, uh, that is, is also making space for each other, too, because they have a different idea about what, what, what particularly with Red Rider. What, what to do about this BB gun or the desire to have a BB gun. And, and, and so those, those family dynamics are very familiar to me. And where, where it is interesting to me is, is thinking about, I think it's really interesting that, that you look at a 40-year-old person now compared to those pictures of 40-year-old people in the pictures of 1940. And they all seem older, even though I'm the same age as those people. So it's just a, it's, it's an interesting thing to, in my mind, to fit that visual of, of what it was to be 40 in 19, 1940, as opposed to in 2023. So we're playing with speech styles and, and movement, but it, it is, that, that's the thing that's on my mind, because the family dynamics come pretty easily. Amy, then, from your standpoint. Um, this is actually my first time playing a mother since I have become a mother, and that is very interesting to me. I've played multiple mothers in the past, but now that I, I have a son, it has been really fun in the rehearsal room to imagine forward. Now, my kid is only one, so he's not getting a Red Rider BB gun anytime soon, <laughs> but my husband is an avid hunter, so I know there will come a point in our lives where we have to have a gun safety conversation and thinking forward about what that could potentially be like. I, you know, can really get on this divided couple conversation. <laughs> uh, also, just tapping into the fact that, you know, mother never stops moving. She's always doing something. She's making food for the family. She's cleaning up. She's decorating the house for Christmas. She's just go, 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 go. And she's doing it all in heels. 
which is just fascinating to me. And there's so much about this character. I grew up very close with my paternal grandparents, and there's so much about this character in particular that reminds me of my grandmother. And so I've been able to tap a lot into that relationship and those experiences, and that's been very fun. And the whole process has just been delightful. Elizabeth, I don't mean to bring up the real world, but the conversation we've just had with Aaron and Amy mentioning the BB gun, what do you do about a gun in the 2023 world as part of a show like this? Is there anything that occurs to you all that it might not have been back in 2001 so prominent? Oh my, yes. We had many, many discussions in play selection, and there are those who felt strongly that this play should not be done anymore. And then there were other people who felt that a BB gun and this play exist in a bubble apart from the gun controversy and the gun safety issues that we're in the midst of now. So I can only say that we're very mindful that often, you know, with Black Bart and the Desperados, those are play guns. I think the big thing for me was that at the end of the show, I I made the request that the BB gun not come down as the last image of the show, that it's definitely just adult Ralph and little Ralphie and, and no BB gun there. Even though they're talking about that being the best Christmas present they ever got, I didn't want it to be visible at that point. But also, because Aaron is a hunter uh, mm-hmm. himself, uh, who's playing an old man, he's very aware of gun safety, and you do see a, a dad who is very mindful that his son is is right from the get-go handling this thing correctly. So trying to not to uh, just say, yeah, hunting is fine. Safety is essential. That rings true then, Aaron. Uh, it does. It does. Well, and it's uh, certainly a conversation that I have with, with my family. We, we have a spectrum of opinions <laughs> on that topic particularly. But I do think that just as the show itself is a, a family tradition, for many people, their holiday tradition that, that, that we're trying to make sure we're, that we're honoring, that is also a tradition. And part of the tradition is, for me, my family tradition of hunting, is teaching a young person, and there's a rite of passage element to it, teaching a young person to respect something that can take a life. And I do think that that is part of the, uh, an important part of the conversation for me and something that does show up in the show. What about Gene Shepard as a figure of wit and someone who made a big mark when he was on radio and doing all that work. Elizabeth, is he someone you were familiar with? I think he came onto my radar because of A Christmas Story. Uh, Back when we first did it, I listened to those, many of those recordings, and I read In God We Trust All Others Pay Cash, and greatly appreciated the wryness and the kind of, there's there's a, I guess wry is the best word, but I enjoy it so much. One of the things I love about this show is that the marriage is dimensional. You see a couple that is both functional and dysfunctional, and you see that there is love and all those places that you rub up against each other and you just you just have to get through the day. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that he has created a world that offers that. This is not, you know, the Leave It to Beaver family that are impossibly perfect. This is a family that, you know, I was saying to the costume designer, I want these clothes to look like they've been worn. This family is worn. You know, they're, they're living their life. And so 
Yeah, I, I do. And I think Aaron can speak much more to that because in his drive, he's been listening to um, <laughs> Shepard. So take it away, Aaron. That's very true. They're, they are all on YouTube, Erica. And I've been trying to get a little bit of his uh, Chicagoan or northern Indiana accent or dialect. <laughs> and in trying to find that, I'm, I'm finding such a joy in storytelling. I, I just can't imagine speaking for 40 minutes straight on, on his show. He just, he just goes for 40 minutes <laughs> at a time and uh, have been really enjoying the, the energy and, and as you, I think you said, frivolity that he brings to the, the stories of his past. And uh, I, I think it's something that, that I love about radio. I think it's something that I love about the new medium of podcasting, that sort of long-form way to tell stories. Um, it's something I'm, I, I've been really enjoying my drives this season <laughs> for the show. And Amy, how about you? I have sort of a similar experience to both uh, Aaron and Elizabeth in that I wasn't introduced to Gene Shepard until this show, which for me is rather recent. Uh, but I have also been listening to those YouTube videos on my commute and uh, really sort of just taking that in. And I would echo everything that, that Aaron said, that energy and then also the the wryness that Elizabeth talked about, like there there's just something very relatable uh, about that. Like you wanna uh, you wanna sit down and at a party and just you know talk to him. And uh, I think that that really shows through in the work. And I think that's one of the reasons that it has such a strong appeal and a, and retains such nostalgia in listening to the conversation. I think that what I admire so much about what he achieves is that his writings are so incredibly nostalgic. And, you know, I call this show the nostalgia machine, but it's not sentimental. And that's what I appreciate about it, appreciate it about it. I think he, he achieves that tapping into our love of nostalgia without having it be sugar-coated. What about music, Elizabeth? Do you use any music as part of setting the tone, the mood? Oh, yes. I'm working with Nick McGaw, who, uh, in addition to being a sound designer, is the proprietor of Endless Records. And so he has probably the most vast resources of holiday music. So we are using, in the first act, 19, late 1930s, early 1940s music. And then we're not introducing too much Christmas music until the second act. In fact, we're in tech right now. So I'm uh, just hearing the things that we've kind of set upon, and they're delightful to me. And but we thought if we start with Christmas music, well, we have to start with Christmas music, but then very quickly in the first act, we just go back to music from the period. So we're trying to set a time and a place. And then in the second act, we get on the Christmas is coming train. And Aaron, you mentioned the sets. Now, we don't want to spoil it. We want to come into the theater and go, ah, so cool. But is there <laughs> anything you can tell us that won't spoil it for us? Uh, just in regards to uh, Elizabeth's nostalgia machine comment, we're trying to find a way that, because this, this play does, even though there are things we can't do that the film version of this does, we do need to jump through all the hoops and locations that the movie does for the most part. So... Uh, we have to go to school, and we have to go outside in an Indiana weather, and we have to have the house uh, home, because I think that that remembering back to the your childhood home is such a huge part of it as well. So I will leave the 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 enticement that we we achieve all of those locations, <laughs> and uh, and hopefully in a way that feels like that there, there's something that folks can employ their imagination to help get to all those places. You all are experts at creating props, working with props, going out into 
the world and coming back with props, but is someone creating a leg lamp for you or many leg lamps for you? Our leg lamp has been purchased. To have a leg lamp that's broken in stock, you don't have to replace the broken leg lamp every year, but we do have a leg lamp, and then it's tradition at BTE that that leg lamp is raffled off after the last show. So every time we do it, we have to get a new one. And so there will be the opportunity to buy tickets to a leg lamp, to get the leg lamp used in the show, not the broken one. Just beautiful. Amy, this is an odd question. You mentioned high heels. Did you have a pair of high heels that you could wear that would be appropriate? Where did you come up with them? Our costume designer, who is also our uh, costume shop manager, Jennifer Lippert, she has provided me with an amazing pair of shoes, which are, I have to say, remarkably comfortable. They're not a super high heel, but I am a, a naturally barefoot human being. So anytime I wear heels, that's a definite change in my stature, the way that I carry myself, my center of gravity and everything. So I've not actually been in them in the rehearsal room too, too often, uh, but I have had my feet in them and they are delightful. They're also very aesthetically pleasing. She did a phenomenal job. Now, Elizabeth, do I understand that this might be something of a swan song season for you? Yes, in fact, this is. This will be my last season as a full-time uh, member of the resident acting company at BTE. So uh, my last main stage show will be Annapurna at the end of this season. And then I will conclude my full-time work at BTE with Velveteen Rabbit, which Amy is directing, Aaron's directing me in Annapurna. And then uh, I will be available as I'm needed in the future. But the difference is that BTE doesn't isn't obligated to use me and probably can, you know, build the company in new directions and take it in the places that they want to go. So I have hope that at, you know, points in the future, I will be both a resource, just a, a resource for the company because it is so beloved to me. So I don't intend to disappear but it's on their terms now, and that might, you know, that might be a while before I come back on stage, or maybe never. I don't know. Or next season. You never know. <laughs> I'm incredibly grateful for the, the long run that I've had and uh, for the community that has supported me and the artists with whom I have worked over a 45-year career. It has been a blessing beyond words, and I won't get emotional about it, but I am doing my best to treasure every minute. <laughs> If there are things that you'd like to add, please, of course, do. The only thing that I want to make sure gets mentioned is the December 2nd, 1 p.m., Kathy Boston's Refriendly performance. We're very delighted that we are being able to offer sensory-friendly performances with more regularity, and that will be on Saturday, December 2nd at 1 p.m., and it is absolutely free. Director Elizabeth Dowd, actors Amy Renee Byrne and Aaron White, members of the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble Resident Acting Company, speaking with us about a Christmas story that will be presented from November 24th through the 28th of December at the Alvina Krauss Theater in downtown Bloomsburg. Now, generally, the shows are Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays at 7.30 p.m. with Sunday matinees at 3. And that first 7.30 performance is Saturday, November 25th. And again, the whole run is through December 28th. But there are special events. There's a special food preview on Friday, November 24th at 2. And that's a real tradition 
at BTE. Donations of food should be non-perishable, and they will be delivered by BTE to the Bloomsburg Food Cupboard. So it's a preview of the show where the admission is a donation of food, and that's for the Bloomsburg Food Cupboard, and it's November 24th at 2. And then on Sunday, November 26th, our own Chris Norton will be BTE's guest as we celebrate our 50th anniversary and present a plaque to the Bloomsburg Theatre Ensemble in appreciation of the ensemble's decades of arts leadership in our region and the strong partnership between the two organizations over that history. So that's on Sunday the 26th and Chris is a wonderful host and he will have prizes and presents and wonderful words to remind us all of the beauty of BTE and its mission. Saturday, December 2nd, as we heard from Elizabeth, is the Kathy Baz Sensory Friendly performance, and that's at 1 o'clock, Saturday, December 2nd, at 1 o'clock. It's open to all. It is a sensory-friendly performance, intentionally modified to accommodate patrons who experience heightened sensory input and who experience anxiety and so forth. So that's all for the wonderful admission fee of zero. They want you to be their guest. So that's Saturday, December 2nd, the Kathy Baz sensory-friendly performance of A Christmas Story at 1 o'clock. And for more information on all of this, bte.org, bte.org. <laughs> 